Uh, but good morning. Uh, happy to see everyone. Glad to be with you all uh, this morning. Um, I know summertime is people are traveling and there's just uh, a lot to um, to do. And contrary to what Pastor Gabe said, there is another month of summer and we're going to celebrate that. We've got another month and we're going to celebrate it and enjoy uh, before we get settled back into the, the fall and uh, all that that brings. Um, as you know, uh, we've been looking uh, the past uh, four weeks. We did an introduction week, and then um, we've been uh, looking at um, the solas of the Reformation. And uh, today we're going to be looking at sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, and this simply means by scripture alone. Uh, the past three weeks, we looked at kind of the way of salvation. Like, how are we saved? And uh, we've learned, and we should all know, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Um, I like saying it like this. It is by grace we are invited. It is by faith we are united. And that's to Christ. And it's only by means of his work on our behalf. Amen? And this is essential. It's essential in understanding our salvation. Uh, if we get these truths wrong, then, brothers and sisters, we get the gospel wrong. Uh, this was the Reformer's resolve. And today we're going to look at the basis for this understanding. So how they got to this point. And it is the rock that all doctrine stands on. It is the final authority in all matters concerning faith and life, and that is the Bible itself. So grab your copy of God's Word and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, uh, 2 Timothy is towards the back. It's one of the smaller letters that Paul has written. He writes it to a young brother, young man that he had mentored, that he had discipled, that was eager to be a pastor and church leader himself. And he writes him some instruction on what he should do when he enters into this role. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read 2 Timothy. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 17 verses. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, and then we will dive into today's look at Sola Scriptura. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Once you have it, you can just look up. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 reads this. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and nev never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Verse 10, you, however, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my 
faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But it's for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your loving instruction. We thank you, God, that you have given us your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that that now we can understand, that our eyes are opened, that our hearts receive, that we are transformed, renewed, So would you help us today? Would you help us do that? Would you uh, help us to leave here different than we walked in? Lord, by your grace, would you do something within each and every one of us that would bring glory to your name? And simply, Father, what we know not would you teach us, and what we are not would you make us, and what we have not would you give us by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name. God's people said, amen. So I want to begin by giving a quick overview of the reformer's position of sola scriptura. Um, Now, there is a massive library of books that have been written on this subject, and uh, I recommend that everybody read a few. I'll send some recommendations. Um, It will be a blessing to you. It'll be an encouragement. It'll be uh, very uh, important for your spiritual life. But for our time and purposes today, we're going to do just a a brief overview of the Reformers' argument of Sola Scriptura in relation to the error of their day. So we're going to look at what was going on in their day. And then that's going to help us to identify some of the things that are going on in our day and time. So like what are we now in this 21st century as, as Christians that are, that are to be uh, take hold of sola scriptura? How do we navigate the pressures in our day? Um, and we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3 that's going to help us to kind of see the importance of this doctrine. So... The question is, what exactly were the reformers standing against when they concluded sola scriptura? Well, at the core of the argument was the answer to this question. And uh, everybody uh, at some point in their life will answer this question. What has the final authority in matters of faith and life? Like basically, like where do we find truth? Where is truth found? What is the final and absolute authority in those matters? Now, during the time of the Reformation, there was much more of an agreement that God's word was absolute truth uh, than we see today. Um, You know, today we've got a a very uh, postmodern view of relativism, right? So it's a whatever is true for you is true for you. Whatever's true for me is true for me. It's very relative to your experiences or, or how you view the world. But 
back then, the Roman Catholic Church and most of society and the reformers would all agree that God's word, right? So God's word had the ultimate authority. So different in our day. But the difference then that the reformers were fighting for and that the Roman Catholic Church uh, held in view was exactly what is God's word. So they would say, like, God's word has final authority. But the question was, well, what exactly is God's word? And the Roman Catholic Church believed that God's word could be found in places outside of Scripture. Okay, uh, they claimed a trifold authority structure that included scripture. So scripture was there. Uh, they also included tradition. They also included the magisterium. And the critical component of their time and their trifold authority was this magisterium itself. Um, the magisterium is the authoritative teaching office of the Roman Catholic Church which is primarily found in the Pope, right? So uh, the Pope is considered then the successor of uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter. Uh, and so his official pronouncements, it would be basically whatever the Pope would say, whatever uh, he would put into place was regarded as the very words of God himself. Very words. Pope said it, that means God said it. Uh, brothers and sisters, that is a problem. Uh, this was a problem. This is a problem. And the reformers argued that Scripture alone, God's Word alone, should stand as the church's true, infallible, and that word just means never failing. It is without error, final authority. They insisted that Scripture uh, not only has the final authority, but that it has the formal principle of everything we believe about faith and about life. Now, a formal principle would be the source, right? It's, it's how something comes about. So everything we say about grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the church should all be found here. It should not leave Scripture. The sentiments of this doctrine are embodied by Martin Luther's famous speech to the Diet of Worms in 1521. Uh, he was asked, so Martin Luther, we talked about how he had uh, nailed the 95 Thesis. He was uh, one of the head leaders of the Reformation and trying to get the church back to the, the teachings of the church that had been uh, in the New Testament. And so the councils and the church at large were telling Martin Luther, hey, you need to recant. You need to take back what you are saying uh, you're saying that it's only God's word is here and uh, that the Pope has no final authority. And uh, basically, Luther was, uh, he was uh, threatened with death. He was threatened with excommunication. He was threatened with beatings and different things. And he goes in front of this council, and here's what he says. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scripture's or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. He says this, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. He says, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. He says, I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against the conscience. And then he goes on to say, may God help me. <laughs> Amen. See, for Luther, Scripture alone was the final and ultimate infallible authority. And he believed that the Roman Catholic Church had erred in the fact that they placed these traditions and the magisterium in the same regard. 
They put them at the same level of scriptures, right? It's like putting LeBron in the same category as Jordan. You just can't do it. Because the reformers were committed to God. The reformers were committed to sola scriptura. And this was because they were convinced that the scriptures alone were indeed God's words. That was their resolve. That's what they were fighting against. So if that was what was happening, then what do we see happening now? I'm going to list a couple of errors that we see common in our day. One common misunderstanding and error of the doctrine of sola scriptura is those that promote this kind of me, God, and my Bible, individualistic uh, type of Christianity. Just me, my God, and, and my Bible, right? And what this creates is an unbiblical view of sola scriptura. Where the church then, the, the, the local church gathered, which God has called us to do, uh, they have no real authority. They, they have no uh, real say within a believer's life. They will also then uh, cut out church history, right? And they don't consider church history when interpreting and applying the Scripture. Uh, hence the reason why today so many churches are, are happy to kind of just be cut off entirely from uh, the traditions of the church or creeds and confessions. They misunderstand sola scriptura to mean that the Bible is the only authority rather than understanding it to indicate that the Bible is the only infallible authority. So basically our, our creeds, our confessions, churches, uh, church leadership, they are helpful and necessary in believers' lives. But this is only insofar as they adhere to the Scriptures. You, you get that? That's an important, critical thing. We, we can't jump outside and say, well, I, I just got a special revelation from the Lord, and He told me that we all need to do this. Well, if it's not in here, uh, you guys can just kick me out, right? Find someone else to, to preach the Word. And a creed or a confession is just an affirmation of what Scripture says. It, it, it is just an affirmation. It's kind of theological shorthand, right? It takes the, the truths of Scripture and it put it into an easy-to-read, easy-to-understand uh, statement that helps believers to believe and to, to, to trust and to, to be pushed back to the study of Scriptures. And if any church, church leadership, if a creed, if a confession is not aligned with Scripture, then that particular subject should not be trusted or used. That's what the Reformers were getting to. See, we can't manipulate Scripture to align with our preferences. We can't manipulate and pick and choose what we like about Scripture. No, we ask God to break our preferences to align with Scripture. It is that, Lord, will you help me to joyfully submit to what you have written? Will, will you help me to joyfully submit to what Scripture teaches, the things, even the things that I don't like? It's hard for us. It's tough. It's hard for me, right? There are many things that, are, that oppose my my natural rebellious will, that I just want to do this, but Scripture calls me to this, so I have to consistently ask God to help me. Remember the Bereans, right? Luke writes about them in Acts chapter 17. So we kind of see this kind of picture of balance here, okay? It says, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So they're receiving the teaching, they're listening, 
but they're also examining the scriptures and what they had, what was being taught to ensure that what they were being taught align with the scriptures. That is our call. That is how we keep the balance between sola scriptura uh, being something that is just, we, we, we say, okay, well now I take it and I run to my uh, closet, my room, and I, I, it's just me, myself, my Bible, God. Rather, we're called to community. We're called to do these things together. Another problem we see today are those who deny the inerrancy of Scripture. They would de- deny this idea that Scripture is without error. I'm going to read our statement of faith in relation to the inerrancy of the Bible. Once again, we, our, is, our statement of faith is a confession from 1833. It's the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. And here's what it says. It says, we believe divinely inspired people wrote the Holy Bible. And it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. God is its author That's important. God is its author. Salvation is its purpose and truth without any mixture of error is its content. Uh, Scripture reveals the principles by which God will judge us. Therefore, it is now and will be to the end of the world the true center. Uh, This is kind of think of that formal principle we talked about few moments ago, of Christian union and the supreme standard for evaluating all conducts, creeds, and opinions. So we believe that the Bible is God's word. It is without error. And we see that there is a special revelation. We see there's general revelation that we can know about God from the things that we see, obviously creation demands a creator. Uh, there are many other things that we see, but the, how we really know God is through his word, through the special written revelation of his word. And if we get this wrong, we, we start getting into all sorts of trouble. When we start to deconstruct and we start to say that, well, there's parts of God's word that are true. There's parts that aren't. We, we start to get into some real major problems. It was B.B. Warfield who once said, the trustworthiness of the scriptures lies at the foundation of trust in the Christian system of doctrine. And therefore, it is fundamental to the Christian hope, and life. Basically, what he's saying here is that when you start to deconstruct the Bible and reapply Scripture as anything less than the infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God, you essentially take away the core principles that the Christian faith holds true. You you take away. Y'all want you to think about, you, you may have seen a video or something before of uh, a guy who's maybe sitting on a, a, a tree limb. And he wants to cut this tree limb down. Um, but said guy fails to remember that if he cuts down this tree limb while he's sitting on it, uh, close to the tree, um, said guy and tree limb both fall, right? You ever seen those videos? A guy might be, you and the tree limb goes down, he falls down with it. Now, the tree is still there, but said guy is at the bottom, broken up, tree limb and all, right? If we, as Christians, do not fully and wholly take God's Word as the infallible Word of God, we will dislodge ourselves from the Christian faith. And we will find ourselves at the the bottom, 
broken up, battered, bruised, and not able to understand how we got there. The Bible is the authority. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. It says, All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now take notice of Paul's words here. He says, All Scripture, not some Scripture. And the root word for Scripture here is the Greek word graphe. Okay, and you get the English suffix uh, graph, right? Think of like paragraph. means something that is written. So generally, this word indicates writing of some sort. Uh, in the New Testament, this word is a technical term that refers to the word of God written in the 39 books of the Old Testament. Uh, and Paul, in his statement here, he specifies all scripture all of it and it indicates paul's intention here to stress every individual passage of scripture what does he say about these writings he says they are breathed out by god uh, this greek word here literally means god breathed God breathed. See, as human beings, we speak with our mouths. We, we speak, we talk, and as our breath moves over our vocal cords, it causes the cords to vibrate and produce sounds that form letters and words by our lips, our tongues, and our teeth. So, so here we get this picture, right, of God breathing out Scripture. He, he breathes it out. It, it must take place. And it helps us to understand Paul's point here, right? Scripture, he says, is the result of God's breathing out in speech. This is a straightforward way of saying that, listen, Scripture is the very speech of God. It is His Word. He says all Scripture. It is breathed out by God. I mean, this emphasizes the divine authority of Scripture. It teaches us that when the Bible speaks, guess what? God speaks. These very writings themselves have been breathed out, spoken by Creator God, the Creator of all things, the one that knows you, the one that loves you, the one that died for you. So brothers and sisters, when God speaks, we better listen. We would be Fools not to. We would be foolish to think that we can navigate this world that God has created and the complexities of living in a sinful, fallen world, the complexities of humanity and relationships, complexity of all that is happening without listening to the one who is in control, God himself. Now, therefore, O sons, listen to me. For blessed are they who keep my ways. Proverbs 8.32 tells us. Blessed are they. And if we don't listen to God's primary means of speaking to us now in our day and age, the Bible, then how in the world will we know God's ways? final common error in our day that we will address is a failure to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And I think this is probably the most common in our day and age right now. 
And we're going to spend the rest of our time here. Paul goes on here in verse 16 and 17 to say, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this word profitable means, obviously, helpful. Paul is saying that, listen, this scripture that we talk about, it is helpful, it is profitable for you. Uh, Teaching here would indicate positive instruction. It would indicate that when we learn the teachings of Scripture, it helps us to grow. This word reproof indicates uh, kind of a rebuke for wrong behavior, right? So it's saying that, hey, Scripture, when when you're navigating the wrong way, when you're believing something that's wrong, when you need to be challenged, Scripture will help you. It will help to Get you back right. And he goes on, he says, for correction, right? You ever been driving and you start to veer off the road and you've got to correct your driving so that you don't wreck. Don't run off a cliff. Don't run into oncoming traffic. Paul says here that, listen, Scripture helps to correct us when we are navigating off course. He says training in righteousness. This just means this training in in godly behavior, helping us to to become more like Christ uh, in preparation uh, for eternity as we are presented to Christ as the bride. And he says it accomplishes something, right? Scripture accomplishes in 17 that the man of God, uh, and this is all inclusive here, it's not just to men, He says the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Man, there's one thing about, I know me, right? Like if I'm I'm working on something, um, you need the right tools to, to, to build something, right? If I'm trying to build something, I'm trying to do something, I'm trying to work on something. Listen, the right tools are the most important to that are accomplishing the goal, right? And Paul's essentially saying here that, listen, if we study the Word of God, if, if we trust in the Word of God, we will be complete. We will have the tools we need to navigate this life that we are in. It says that enables any person of God to be complete and to meet all requirements. It's simply saying that the Bible enables all believers to be proficient in whatever demands God places on them by making them equipped for every good work. And we know that Scripture teaches us that God saves people so that they might perform good works. We are saved for a purpose. It's for his great name's sake, and we are called to live in accordance to the salvation to which we have been saved. We're saved for good works in which we have been that have been prepared beforehand. That's what scripture tells us. And this text makes clear that scripture equips and enables readers for every single one of those good works. There's nothing that God does, nothing that God calls us to or calls us to do that he doesn't equip us to do. But it's found here. The key component is knowing his word. And why is Scripture the key component? Because it is indeed God's word. Unfortunately, there are many who have abandoned this key component. They've succumb to the consumeristic ways of the culture. Uh, Many have traded in Bible-saturated worship gatherings for upgraded models that are relevant and comfortable for the audience they draw. 
They've bought into the lie that God's word needs to be minimized and entertainment needs to be maximized. The dog and pony show that passes for many Sunday gatherings in our day is nothing more than an emotionally driven entertainment culture with some Christian language kind of thrown in. Because people don't believe that the Bible is sufficient. They don't believe that this is what has the power to save. What does Paul's words tell us? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it alone is the power to save, to draw sinners to repentance. And Paul says here to young Timothy, he says, listen, it's going to help you. It's going to train you. It's going to equip you for every good work, everything that you have been called to do. The Word will prepare you for. Listen to James Montgomery Boyce on this matter. This is a, a longer quote here, but I think it's very helpful and important. He says, The Reformers wanted Scripture to stand alone as the church's true authority. Today, at least in the evangelical church, that is not our chief problem. We assert biblical authority. Authority, Rather, our problem is in deciding whether the Bible is sufficient for the church's life and work. We confess its authority, but we discount its ability to do what is necessary to draw unbelievers to Christ to enable us to grow in godliness, to provide direction for our lives, and transform and revitalize society. There's a lot that can be said about that. And then he goes on and he says, so we substitute such things as Madison Avenue methodology. Uh, that's just a kind of a term for like gimmicky. It's all gimmicks, and it's all emotional gimmicks, and uh, trying to get you in, and uh, trying to change this or that to, to meet your preferences rather than sticking to what God's Word says. And he says that, I quote, for biblical evangelism, or special religious experiences rather than knowledge of the Word to promote and guarantee sanctification, they substitute special revelations for discerning the will of God for our lives and a trust in the power of votes and money to change society. In other words, in the 16th century, the battle was against those who wanted to add church traditions to Scripture. But in our day, the battle is against those who would have us use worldly means to do God's work, end quote. I mean, that's a very accurate description and synopsis of our day and age. And this was written in the late 90s, and brothers and sisters, it has indeed gotten worse. And as we close for these last five, ten minutes, I just want to uh, look at verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3. Uh, and I want to kind of build a quick argument and make a few points that I think will help us to stand on sola scriptura alone. Uh, I really believe that this passage is very uh, important for us to, to, to see as we look at understanding some of the things that Paul is telling Timothy that scripture is sufficient for. I mean, he goes through this long list of different things, and I'm just going to read them, and then we'll make a few notes but the first thing that Paul says in verses 1 through 5 is that Scripture is sufficient for identifying false teachers. Verses 1 through 5, Scripture is sufficient for identifying false teachers. Look at what he says. But understand this, that in the last days, I'm in verse 1 here, um, and this phrase, last days, means the time since Christ, uh, the first coming of Christ, right? So we are all, we're in the last days, just a biblical history, the, the timeline of what we're all, it doesn't mean that there's just a few days left. It's a term that would mean uh, this general time in history. 
So he says, in these last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. If you've got your Bible, uh, circle these, underline these. Look at what these different words are. He says they're lovers of self. There's lovers of money. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're abusive. They're disobedient to their parents. They're ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They're brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. We'll start there, or we'll stop there. I mean, that's a list of serious offenses, right? There's a lot that's going on right there. Paul doesn't leave any stone unturned. I mean, he he, he speaks to the human heart. Uh, As I read through some of those, there's some that I'm I'm like, man, continue to work on me, Lord. Continue to to work and and sanctify me. But verse 5 tells us that these are false teachers or or false converts because he says here this phrase, he says, they have the appearance of godliness. Now, Paul doesn't say that anywhere else. He doesn't talk about non-believers like this or, or the world like this. He says they have this appearance of godliness. So apparently, these are people that are uh, appearing on the outside to be godly, to be these men or women of God. Paul says they just appear that way. Really, what's going on is that they deny the power of God to change the heart. They deny this power. They're false teachers. And he says... Avoid them. Avoid such people. Uh, The second one I want to point out here is that in verses 6 and 7, Scripture is sufficient for women's ministry. Okay? I know some of y'all are like, where did we get this from? Scripture is sufficient for women's ministry. Look at verses 6 and 7. For among them are those who creep into household and they capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So Paul is speaking here about women who are... are, They're weak in their knowledge of the truth. It's not that they're weak. It's that they're weak in their knowledge of truth. So they're easily influenced by these false teachers. Saying these people are coming in and they're preying on these women that are weak and causing them to go astray. And Church, members of CCF, man, let us have a women's ministry. Let's believe in a women's ministry that is rooted in the Word of God. I mean, there's plenty of things that, that you can do together that women can do and enjoy together. But let's never neglect the importance of studying, learning, growing in our knowledge of the Word of God. This is not just a man's duty. So many in the church would would say that, right? And, And there are unfortunately many women who are satisfied being scripturally illiterate. And my prayer for this body of believers is that we would have women that are stand firm 
in God's word, that know the scriptures. And that when they see and hear false teachings, they would not be easily swayed by the misconceptions and the, this nonsensical nonsense that is going on out here in the world. They would stand on the word of God. I think Paul's argument is clear. Third thing I want to point out is in verses 8 through 9. Is that scripture is sufficient for identifying false converts. Scripture is sufficient for identifying false converts. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. He says, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now, these two guys are not mentioned anywhere in Scripture. But according to Jewish tradition and other writings, and obviously Paul is now including them, he knew something about these guys. Uh, Apparently they were Egyptian magicians that opposed Moses in the time of writing Exodus. The time of the writing of Exodus. And apparently what these guys did was they pretended to be uh, converts, Jewish converts. They, they pretended and they crept in to the group of people, the Jewish people then, and they instigated worship of the golden calf. We all remember that story. Apparently these guys were a part of kind of rally, uh, getting the, the, the crowd and the people kind of riled up. And they encouraged them to worship the golden calf. Uh, Apparently, according to um, Tradition 2 and other writings, they were killed uh, with the rest of the idolaters. Uh, Their their fate was uh, not so good. But what Paul uses them here as this example, this uh, illustration, is because they had a detrimental impact on the Jewish people. And and Paul says, listen, there's going to be more. There will be false converts who gather in your midst and we must know God's word so we can identify them. We know well, what they're saying really doesn't add up to what God's word says. And Paul says scripture will help us to get there. Fourth is that Scripture is sufficient for enduring suffering. Scripture is sufficient for enduring suffering. We see that in verses 10 through 13. So he's now he's talking to Timothy. He tells young Timothy this. He says, you, you, there's these people over here, there's false teachers, there's false converts, there's women that are being led astray by these people, and there are people that are being influenced. But you, young Timothy, you, however, you have followed my teaching. Very keen word. What is Paul teaching? He's teaching the Word of God. He says, you've also followed my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul's point here is clear. Faithful followers of Christ may indeed face persecution and suffering. And he points young 
Timothy to his teaching of the word and his living out of the word, what he had been taught. He said, hey, you, you, I, I taught you these things verbally. I, I, I taught you, but I also showed you. I lived in a manner that was worthy of the calling to which I had been called. And he says, hey, if you're going to endure the hardships and sufferings of life, you better be rooted in this word. You, you better stay strong in these things. That's the only way that we will endure hardships that we are inevitably going to see as brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ. You know, go into some of the public squares and, and, and promote a, a view of sola scriptura. Go into the public square and promote a, a, a view of a biblical view of marriage. Step into the public square and promote a biblical view of, of, of pro-life, anti-abortion. Step into a public square and uh, promote a view of Scripture as the one true reconciliator. Rather than worldly ideologies. Step into the public square and promote that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, as we talked about last week. <laughs> you will face hardships, persecutions, sufferings. You know, in America, we, when someone doesn't like us, we consider it suffering. Check out what's going on in the rest of the world. There are many that are dying daily because they would never forsake the teachings of Scripture. Man, do we have the courage to do the same? Paul says, know your word. This is how you will endure. Fifth here, and the final one. In verses 14 through 15, we see Scripture is sufficient for discipling and teaching our children. And listen, this isn't just the parents either. As a church family, we all have an obligation to disciple the kids that we are around. Every opportunity you have to speak to these young children, to uh, have influence in their lives, is an opportunity to disciple them, to teach them. Do not neglect this calling to disciple children if you're not a parent. You have a part to play. That's the beauty of the family of God. Just as aunts and uncles and nuclear families and uh, biological families, they, they have a part to play. We do too. Much, much more is now the redeemed family of God that have been called to live life together and then also to, to journey on to eternity together. He says in 14, he says, but is for you. He says, continue. That word is very crucial. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. See, Paul reminds him here to stick to what he has been taught as a child. He says, remember those things that you were taught? Stick to them. And Scripture tells us that Timothy's grandmother and his mother uh, had a massive uh, part to play in uh, his understanding and his uh, even calling. That they were diligent in teaching young Timothy the truths of Scripture. And uh, at that time it was the, the Old Testament Scripture. And because of the faithfulness of his family, because of the faithfulness of these women in his 
in his life. He had been raised and disciplined in the word of God. And it impacted him. And brothers and sisters, Paul says, continue to do this just as you were. Remember these things. And I believe there's implication here that he says, continue to do it yourself. Man, moms, dads, no matter how busy your life is, teach your children the truths of God's word. Train them. Train them in the instruction of God's word. Man, my, my childhood was, wasn't picture perfect by any means. But one thing that I always say and I always remember is my mother's just consistent faith. And the way that she would always, when times were crazy and we didn't know like where meals were coming from, we didn't know like what was next for our safety, for different things that we've been through. And man, my mom would pray. She would pray. And I ran wild for, for years. I ran from that. But I'll tell you what, that impacted me so much. And it always gave me this basis of, man, there's a God. And when I'm in trouble, when I'm in need, I can call on him. I can pray. And I believe God used her in many ways. And I'm thankful for that. And man, let me encourage you all to be these type of people. No matter how much they don't like it, no matter how old they are, no matter how much they rebel against it, teach them the word of God. Proverbs 22, 6, right? Train up a child the way that he should go. Not the way he wants to go. Not the way that the world tells them to go. But the way that they should go. Because even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. And would that be our resolve as a church? And would our resolve and commitment to sola scriptura be that of the reformers in public and in private life? Would we be a people who study this book, who trust this book, and who apply this book as it truly is the Word of God? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Lord, we are, I know I am constantly amazed at the way that your, your word just does something. It changes us. It moves us. It reminds us. And Lord, I pray today, Father, that there are any in here who do not know the power of your word. They do not know the power of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to die. Came to live a life we couldn't live. He, he died a death that we deserve so that now when we, we place our faith, our trust, our hope solely in him that we can have relationship with you now and for eternity. Father, I pray that you would draw any that may not know the power of that truth. Lord, you would work in their hearts right now. It would help us to be a church that is rooted firmly, securely in your word. Help us to never navigate from that, Lord. And if we do, would you correct us? 
We thank you for the grace that is the church. We thank you for the grace that is this body of believers that we get to do life with, Lord. Help us to train up our children, whether biologically or spiritually. Ours. Help us to train them up in the way that you have called us to live. We pray this in Christ's name.